Hey, Brian. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 28th episode of The Goods Film Podcast. How are you doing today, Brian? Doing all right. Spring is here. Indeed. Starting to get a little warmer. That's because we're near the end of March, which means we're getting very close to the start of April. April Fool's Day is a celebrated day, at least online, at least among people I knew. I've always had a little bit of mixed feelings on April Fool's Day, but it's just kind of a fascinating concept for a holiday where you're screwing with people. Yeah, it feels very medieval. I've always liked the spirit of it. I enjoy that the big internet companies seem to get into it these days. I've never really executed a very good April Fool myself. So in in that regard, we are trying this season to work in some tricksy films, some things you might not expect. And I think today Dan has served up something that comments on the nature of trickery. Indeed. And that is the 1973 documentary asterisk F for fake. This was the last feature film released during Orson Welles's life. He subsequently had some projects released posthumously, but this was uh, his last one in his lifetime. True. He did voice Unicron in the Transformers movie the year he died in 1985, but the, uh, he did not helm that one for sure. Indeed, I correct. I meant film that he directed. I actually wanted to start by talking a little bit about Wells because I recently read a book on film history where I learned a lot about him that I had really not known prior to reading that. I mean, you know his name. It's a name that even people still recognize as kind of a great artist and great figure of film, but he kind of has an interesting and in some ways mixed legacy and story. Um, so just to kind of back up his reputation as acclaimed, he is the number two most acclaimed filmmaker in cinema history, according to They Shoot Pictures, Don't They?, which is a website that ha- assembles all sorts of critical countdown rank lists and uh, assembles it into kind of one master list that I've referenced many times on this podcast and will probably continue to do so. And indeed, in a, a separate acclaimed poll, Sight and Sound, which is run every 10 years by the British Film Institute, uh, he was picked as the number one director of all time in, in all of cinema history. And of course, his first film, and his widely regarded masterpiece, Citizen Kane, frequently shows up at or near the top of all-time greatest and most influential movie lists. But honestly, the rest of his career is a little bit of a what-if. There's a little bit of a lingering of shadow of missed potential because of the fallout of Citizen Kane. So kind of the, the things that led into Citizen Kane, he very quickly kind of rose to fame and reputation in radio and theater. And in fact, at age 22, he co-founded his own production company slash theater troupe named Mercury Theater that would put on actually a, I don't know if it was on April Fool's, but it's certainly one of the 
premier uh, public trickery gags in media history. Brian, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, War of the Worlds? Yes. So this was actually uh, Halloween. I think it was the night before Halloween. I believe it was October 30th, 1938, that Wells and his theater troupe, the Mercury Theater on the Air, did a radio broadcast that was sort of a mockumentary. I don't know, you know, like a Blair Witch style thing, only uh, 50 years, 60 years earlier, that they staged it like Earth was really being invaded by aliens and they were just news reporters capturing the story. But, I mean, if you started from the beginning, you would know that it was a play that they were putting on. But part of the notorious story is that a more popular show that was on at the time was the, like, Charlie McCarthy Hour. And I don't know how a ventriloquist act plays on the radio. It seems like it would not work. But, like, people were cutting in and out of more popular shows, and they just caught the middle of the Orson Welles broadcast about people being vaporized. And, of course, this was when Hitler was on the rise. So World War II was on its way, arguably had already begun in China. So the world was kind of on edge, and the idea that there would be an invasion soon was not that ridiculous. So as the story goes, people were were taken in by this hysteria, and whether or not there were actually people panicking in the streets and, like, ready to shoot their families to spare them martian terrorism it definitely captured the spirit of the nation and captivated imaginations so hollywood came calling and i think it was rko whatever studio got his ear gave orson welles pretty much carte blanche to make a movie right and that was primarily off of the the fame and the notoriety of that that broadcast he's even said in, in subsequent things he knew that they wanted something sensational. But yeah, because he had complete control, he, he co-wrote, he directed, and he starred in the film. And it really does not bear any resemblance whatsoever to War of the Worlds. Uh, it's a biography of a fake, well, s- sort of fake, uh, magnate named Charles Foster Kane. And Kane was based heavily off of William Randolph Hearst, but also brought in elements from lots of other kind of rich media magnates and kind of millionaires pulling strings, including Joseph Pulitzer, Harold McCormick, Sam Insel, and hold this thought for a few minutes, but Howard Hughes as well. But Hearst, understanding that he was the main target of this, and in control of a large percentage of newspapers and media at the time, completely buried the film. RKO still released it, but it didn't even make back its budget. And even though the film has gone down as, you know, one of the great pieces of cinema, and even at the time was really recognized and widely lauded among critics who saw it, he would never have the same authorial control at the same level of budget that he did for Citizen Kane. He kind of tried a lot of different things to recapture the lightning in the bottle. One was he 
basically his next film, The Magnificent Ambersons, got completely gutted by the studio while Wells took a trip to Brazil. And parts of it were refilmed. The studio actually destroyed some of the original footage so that Wells couldn't try to edit it back in and back to his original vision. That was just one. That was his second one. And then he tried different things. He he tried to fit into the studio confines, but always clashed with the studios. He, he went to Europe, but wasn't ever able to secure enough funding to make the things that he wanted to make. He tried to self-fund his own projects, but wasn't successful enough at getting enough money to, again, have, have the vision that he wanted. And the result is that he basically left a string of ambitious but incomplete or otherwise studio-meddled projects in his wake, some of which have been gradually pieced back together. For example, in 2018, Netflix released one of these kind of incomplete projects that was sitting in the vaults called The Other Side of the Wind. And it might still be up there, actually. I haven't watched it, but that was one that he made in his lifetime and almost completed, but didn't quite, and it never received release until 2018. Yeah, he's kind of a unique figure in that pretty much everyone regards him as this genius, this brilliant creative light. And then you actually go to see what did he actually finish and like what what concrete products did he produce? And the list is shorter than you would expect. Right. And even the ones that are there have all sorts of footnotes on them. Yeah, caveats. But he basically spent the rest of his life on combination of these incomplete projects a couple that actually did come to completion one of his last ones was touch of evil that is still regarded as sort of a masterpiece although diminished from the heights of citizen kane but he really made his living as kind of this media personality he was an actor and a pretty highly regarded actor in a bunch of films he was frequently on radio talk shows and TV talk shows and was just kind of this guy who was there until his death, which, you know, considering he was about 26 years old when he made Citizen Kane, he had four and a half decades left after that to still be a major presence in cinema. He didn't die until about 1985. He was like 70, I think. Yeah, that was something that really surprised me in this film was how long some of these people lived. Not necessarily Orson Welles. I mean, that's a respectable lifespan, uh, 70 years, but pretty par for the course. Uh, But like Howard Hughes, I had no idea, was alive until 1976. Right. And Pablo Picasso was alive until 1973. That one's always blown my mind. That seems later than it should be, given that he's like a famous painter. Seems like all famous yeah. painters should be like well before our parents' lifetime, you know, like old figures. Right. Yeah, Picasso is interesting because like his, I mean, Guernica, it's like during World War II. So he he was fairly recent, I guess. But yeah, I think of him as being lumped in with older painters. You're right. So some sports podcasts I listen to sometimes do this thought exercise if this person relived his career 10 times, which version did we get? Did we get the absolute best out of those 10? Did we get the absolute worst out of those 10? Did we get something in the middle? Basically, given talent and circumstances, 
did this person reach their potential? And obviously it's a simplified thought exercise of wrapped around a something that should be probably a deeper analysis, but it's kind of a fun game. And I kind of ask myself, if you replayed Wells's career, let's say starting at his peak at Citizen Kane, if you replayed the rest of his career 10 times, how many of them end up better than the one we got? And I think the number is something like eight out of 10. I don't know, just judging his talent and how many things seem to go wrong. He still did get a few more acclaimed masterpieces out there, but there are so many asterisks. I kind of feel like we we didn't get the most out of out of Orson Welles in his lifetime. You really have to ask, what would Orson Welles do in a time loop? <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> he had a quote in the movie. I'm not sure that he was talking about himself because there's a lot of figures in this, what could be called a story, that have similar connective tissue in terms of their careers and personalities but he said i began at the top and i've been working my way down ever since it's an evocative quote and bit of self-analysis it's like if your first job ever produces the best movie ever what do you do after that (laughs) it's like the avatar kids once they save the world what are they going to do with the rest of their lives or Harry Potter, it's just going to be boring. You can go and become a wizard cop or something, but you're only going to save the world once. It's interesting. I've encountered a couple of stories that are around some sort of wonderkind figure several years after their kind of glorious youth. And I found that the people who make those stories are often people who their first work was like seminal. So John Green, who I've mentioned several times, one of my favorite writers, his first book, Looking for Alaska, was a major bestseller, won the Prince Award, which is like the top American young adult literature award. And his second book, I think it was, or maybe his third book, was called An Abundance of Catherines that dealt with a former child prodigy basically entering young adulthood. And then... Is it P.T. Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson? His first film, or first major film, I, I don't know his, his whole career, was Boogie Nights, which I haven't seen, but I know it was like this really kind of seminal indie picture in the 90s. And subsequently, he made a movie called Magnolia, where William C. Macy played a former child actor who was kind of living his life trying to fulfill his his early uh fame and glory it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about i agree with you like that anytime someone reaches the maximum potential early what do you expect for the rest of their life do they are they going to continue to re-peak or are they just going to be a shadow of themselves i'm gonna assign boogie nights at some point i do want to watch it for sure so that brings us to the actual movie that's the focus of today F for fake. And I'll tell you a little bit about its origin story, but in fact, one of the interesting things about the movie is it basically tells its own origin story in the first 15 minutes. So Wells was commissioned to edit a more conventional documentary with footage filmed by Francois Reichenbach, who is a French filmmaker. And he was working on it, but 
the movie drastically transformed and Wells kind of took more control of it after the story of the biographer of the kind of the main character of the documentary, which we'll get to in a minute, got involved in this other scandal about writing a fake documentary, a fake autobiography for Howard Hughes. And from there, it kind of transformed into this uh, something that is certainly not a conventional documentary, but still ultimately resembles a documentary. When it was released in 73, it was pretty widely derided. It got bad reviews. Some people were really angry about the way that he made it. But it has subsequently gone on to a much better reputation. And in fact, is ranked number 245 on They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? That kind of list that mixes together a whole bunch of all-time great movie lists into one super list. So that would make it among the most critically revered films that we've talked about on the goods. Wow. Any thoughts before we dive into the, the film itself, Brian? Just to put a picture in your mind, this movie is Orson Welles and his artsy 70s friends hanging out and being artistic together and a little bit self-indulgent, but experimental. Definitely agree that that's the vibe. I want to talk a little bit more about that for sure. So the movie opens with Orson Welles performing and narrating a magic trick to a young child. And the film from the start really draws attention to its own artifice and the way that it's kind of arranged. Like literally the third shot of the movie is the film crew itself preparing to film the magic trick. And although Wells is talking to this young child, he as he continues to narrate, his narration matches what we're seeing with the perspective of the thing that is on frame, not necessarily what the kid is seeing. So it's really from the start kind of messing with your head on what is real, what isn't, how he is kind of shaping your perspective of the film. Yeah, it's like sometimes the words that he's saying line up with the wells that you're seeing on the screen talking to the kid and other times they don't line up and i was trying to figure out if i had like the right language settings on i thought maybe it was in french originally and had been dubbed i wasn't sure i i also want to make sure that listeners kind of understand orson wells so i've seen citizen kane i've seen magnificent ambersons i've seen clips here or there but this is really the first time that i've kind of gotten a full picture of Orson Welles in his element. And he's just this big guy, tall, fairly obese. He's not that huge, but he was getting there though. And by the end he was, he was large. Just this kind of big imposing guy. And his voice is this silky baritone. And he's just the epitome of what you call a raconteur, a person who can just entertain you just by speaking and telling little stories and just being the highlight of whatever crowd you're in. He's the one stealing the show. He's the one drawing your attention. And the way that he tells stories and talks is just so magnetic. And and uh, I don't know. I found myself really drawn to him as he was kind of leading us on this journey here. Yeah, I love this aspect of Orson Welles. 
he is a big fan or was a big fan of like magicians as we see at the start he practiced magic and i think that was his favorite part was being on the stage and telling stories as he wraps up this magic trick he begins telling a story directly to the camera he promises that everything he tells in the next hour will be 100% true but of course we're already primed to be suspicious because of the opening of deception and as we will see the topic itself is deception Um, and in fact the movie will kind of deconstruct the nature of truth in film and in art as it goes and of course if you're watching on amazon or netflix or what have you there's a little uh time code running at the bottom of the screen so (laughs) right orson wells is now on the clock exactly so then the movie kind of transitions to its actual documentary portion but I really want to talk about what this means to call it a documentary because I haven't seen all that many documentaries, but the ones I have seen are not like this. It's really rapidly and jarringly edited between a combination of a few things. We have grainy footage of the subjects of the documentary itself, but also Wells. He's sometimes a stage narrator, but there's also a lot of footage of him like on location of some of the stuff they're talking about in the same sort of handheld footage look. We also see a lot of clips of the movie itself being edited and assembled. And there's also footage from other movies brought in. I think I looked it up. There's like one movie that appears a couple times called Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, which is a science fiction film where we kind of see these aliens attacking monuments and sort of like claymation miniatures type special effects. It's got the Ray Harryhausen special effects, yeah. And then we even see moments reenacted. And the overall effect of it is that, I don't know, it's just very jarring and elliptical. Wells also brings himself and the creation of the film into the story and like kind of does his own riffs on what's what's going on in a way that like you wouldn't expect to be a part of the actual narration. It's like almost if someone was screening a film for you and was telling you about the film, not the film itself. And one example that's kind of complex and strange is they take clips from the radio broadcast, or at least they're supposed to be from the radio broadcast, except even those are like recreations that don't say exactly what's in the original show because i've listened to the 1938 recording a bunch of times and this had like different scenes and they were saying different things so it's kind of a fabrication from the ground up right this goes back to i think the tone you were talking about where it's wells and his friends being artsy almost like for the sake of being artsy just kind of like living in this bubble where they spend all their time thinking about art the whole thing is very avant-garde and destabilizing and the sense of continuity is very much disrupted. It sometimes bounces between timelines, like from one sentence to the next without any transition. And it very frequently will like have one shot and then it will have Wells standing at the same place, for example. Or then it'll cut to the shot of Wells editing the thing that we just saw in kind of an old-fashioned film back studio office type thing and 
It's pretty wild. I mean, it, it all kind of aligns with the movie's themes of sleight of hand that are laid out in the, from that very first scene and until the very last scene. But I just want to repeat, it's not like anything I've ever seen before. But yeah, like it'll cut from, they'll be like at a train station and they're going to go catch a train and then suddenly Orson will start narrating a different Orson than the one we're seeing waiting for the train and he'll say something like, but we couldn't all fit on the train so I had to put my girlfriend in a smaller container and then he pulls out this crazy like theatrical magician's apparatus and has his lovely assistant crunch down inside the box so he like puts her inside a suitcase so from moment to moment it's changing from something that seems like a standard documentary scene that's just being recorded live by a camera to something that is staged in the sense of like a standard narrative film scene shot on a soundstage and then changing to like a weird magic act that combines very obvious showmanship with the sense that your eyes are going to be tricked and you're willingly suspending disbelief. So it's like all planes at once of how serious we are supposed to interpret what our eyes are taking in. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. So this documentary segment, it's kind of a, you know, we've, we're maybe 10 minutes into the movie at this point. And then the movie kind of reintroduces itself with a new credit segment. And it titles the movie about fakes presented by Francois Reichenbach. So I guess the idea is we're now kind of seeing in miniature the version of the film that Wells was initially supposed to be making. But of course, the instant that it does this, it pivots again, <laughs> just as we're kind of feel like we're starting to see the actual story. And we get this segment where we quote unquote meet Oya Kadar, Kodar maybe. I don't know exactly how you say her, her name, but I think it's Oya, O-J-A. And, and we keep seeing her name popping up. And she's this beautiful woman who is implied and perhaps directly stated to be Wells's lover. And there's this weird multiple minute montage that's framed entirely around her lower half. You can see her, her butt and her the tight skirt around her a whole lot. And it cuts back and forth between her walking around Rome and these men sort of rubberneck ogling her. And this is kind of cross cut with the credits for the documentary, even though this seemingly has nothing to do with the actual subject of the film. And, and this is when it transitions into one of those those magic tricks. Brian, as you were watching this, you IM'd me. I forget exactly what you said, but something along the lines of, so how long do we actually have to watch Orson Welles' girlfriend's butt here? What did you think of this bit? At, at a certain point, I was like looking at my watch. Just It does go on for a little while. Yeah. The way that Orson Welles presents this is that they were doing like a candid camera thing or... What are some of those other shows? What Would You Do or Bait Car or I guess How to Catch a Predator where they're, they've got cameras rolling and they're waiting to entrap people, catch people unawares. And so supposedly these men who are staring at his girlfriend are just people really standing around in the streets. 
And I wonder if that's true. I wonder if they ever knew that they were in a movie, if that is the case. Right. Exactly. He basically lays out that everyone else was just an unwitting actor. But again, we have been already been taught not to trust what Wells is saying. So definitely left at least somewhat ambiguous. So at long last, we move to the story proper of this film, which is kind of maybe not insubstantial, but it's just one small piece of the ultimate puzzle of F for Fake. But it's about the arc of this art forger named Elmir de Ori, I think his name is. And he's this guy who grew rich creating fake works of famous painters and selling those fakes to art dealers. And we come to learn that the art dealers themselves may or may not be in on the scam. But Elmir now lives in Ibiza, a small, quaint island. And in this documentary footage, he very much deflects questions about his past and just how fraudulent he was being. He kind of suggests that, oh, he'd never actually signed it with a fake name, so people should have known that it was fake. But it seems pretty clear that he was actually trying to pass it off as the original artists. Another main figure here is Elmir's biographer, this guy named Clifford Irving. As we kind of get to know these two characters and kind of the whole scam that Elmir perpetuated, we also occasionally cut away to reclusive tycoon Howard Hughes. Wells does, in fact, kind of break the fourth wall and note that Hughes was an inspiration for Citizen Kane. Well, the connection, as you'll probably elucidate upon, is that Clifford Irving also wrote a book about Howard Hughes, claiming that he had secret private interviews with Hughes and no one could disprove him initially because Hughes was such a recluse. Right. And that actually happened after the filming of most of the footage. So it's initially not clear why we are watching Hughes but it kind of gradually comes out that Clifford Irving, this guy who was also Elmir's biographer, did exactly what you just said. And we get some interesting bits on these Howard Hughes kind of detours where Wells reenacts aspects of Hughes's peculiar late life. There was this anecdote about how he would take late night walks and he had someone hired to leave in package form at 1.30 a.m. And the package was always a ham sandwich. And again, I, I can only assume that this was completely made up because I think he even says, if you could believe that, would you believe that Howard Hughes let someone write his biography? But you could tell that Wells was having fun in these Hughes segments. There are plenty of really strange Howard Hughes stories. And even just the true stuff is wild. I recommend checking out a podcast called uh, You Must Remember This. It has season-length story arcs about different periods in filmmaking history. And I think there's two whole seasons about Howard Hughes. Wow. Because he did all kinds of stuff. He was an inventor. He was an industrialist. He was a technically pioneering filmmaker, just like Orson Welles would be. And he was also famously a pilot, an aviator. Right. 
So this story of kind of the, all these figures comes to a head as the documentary examines Clifford Irving's revealed to be fake autobiography of Howard Hughes. We also get a, an interesting interlude with these really lovely shots of the cathedral of, I don't know how you say this in French, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, Ch- Chartres, Chartres, C-H-A-R-T-R-E-S, where Wells kind of ponders, you know, now that we've seen all sorts of different fake art, he kind of ponders whether it really matters that much. Who were the actual hands that crafted it? Shouldn't it matter how we connected to it and what physically persists over time and how we can relate to that? Which was maybe the only time in the film that I really found it resonant and compelling, his questions about his, I guess, maybe not questions, but his considerations of artifice and deception and why they, they matter in the artistic process. That was the moment he got through to you as being something other than just a complete blowhard. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree this is where it most hit home for me. Uh, but it, it did seem profound. This whole movie is about questions of what gives art its value. Is it the people who say that it's good, for instance? Like, there are a lot of questions about what makes an expert... And, you know, is it all just a winking agreement between certain people who make certain art and certain people who sell it to the masses? Reminded me a little bit early on when we first started our show, you quoted the critic from Ratatouille. And I was thinking about that as well. Mm, yeah. Like there's a there's a value that critics impart on something by giving it their blessing. I read this article that I didn't even think of as I was watching this, but is so relevant where in the, the past 20 years, it's not really like a scam or a scandal, but it is like an intentionally manipulated thing where rich people will basically find some artists that they like and they will buy a bunch of their pieces at a modest amount. After they kind of already have a hoard of a whole bunch of those artist pieces, they will then buy a couple pieces for exorbitantly high prices. Oh, I, you know, I bought 10 paintings at $15,000 a piece, and then I buy the next painting at $2 million. And all of a sudden the art world will be like, oh my gosh, who's this hot artist who's sold a painting for $2 million? And everyone will get interested in their work. And that inflates the value of all paintings by this person. So now these millionaires who had kind of bought the original pieces on the cheap and then artificially almost inflated the value of them by drawing attention by paying a huge sum. Now these paintings become worth, instead of 15000 they're worth 150000 or worth a million or something like that. So received a huge return on investment in that. So you can say, oh, that's, that means art is just meaningless. It's just a scam, etc. But the kind of fallout of that is that people now pay attention to this art and think about this art and how it relates into the world of art. So it's not like there's nothing there, but it certainly kind of aligns with this movie's questions of who really is the one and what is the incentive for doing so in deciding what is art. It's also interesting to think about the role of a forger 
like a, a person able to forge the work of other artists especially multiple artists actually has to be really good at painting and not in just one style you got to be able to do many styles but it talks about maybe the forger forges because they don't have ideas of their own and i think that question can be extended out even to considerations of like movies today you know that we say there's no originality and it's like we're are we all just copying what works is art even people making quote-unquote original art is any art original or is everything derivative right and the movie spends a lot of time kind of pondering that several quotes of people saying something along the lines of well it's just as beautiful as a matisse painting and if i can't tell that it's not a matisse and it does the same things that a matisse painting does how is it actually different from a matisse and clearly the person who made this must be skilled, even if they weren't, in fact, Matisse or whoever, whichever. There's a bunch of artists. That's like actually it kind of expands it is, you know, Matisse or whoever, Picasso, typically known for one or just like maybe not one style, but certainly like a distinct single through line of an artistic vision. Whereas this guy, El Elmir, is able to create several artists and kind of recreate all variety of periods and, and artists, which in some ways is even more impressive. You know, he can do a bunch of different styles. Did this movie make you think of any other films we've covered about the art world, Dan? <laughs> it didn't at the time, but I don't know if this is what you were fishing for. The bucket of blood also has a little bit of a uh, consideration of who defines art as great and what does it mean for art to be great? And kind of the fakeness in that. Exactly. And the people willing to pay a lot of money to sort of an undiscovered artist to be able to claim first dibs on whatever they produce. And that in and of itself kind of creating artificial value. So at this point, the movie pivots to its next segment where it shifts the spotlight towards... Oh yeah, the the woman that we've seen frequently throughout the film, including the aforementioned focus on her lower half for several minutes during the credits. But the movie goes on to explain that Oya oh yeah, was in fact at one point associated with Clifford Irving, the biographer, and also was in the art forgery world herself. One summer she connected perhaps romantically with Picasso late in his life where he painted and gifted to her 22 portraits of her. And then at some point in the future, Oya put those portraits up for auction, which infuriated the aging Picasso. Picasso stormed the gallery, only to see that all the portraits were fakes, created by Oya's grandfather, who was on his deathbed. And the grandfather claims to have burned all of the originals, or maybe it was Oya who claimed that. And this whole story segment is basically narrated by Wells, but reenacted. We have we don't have anyone other than Oya, who's kind of a part of this, still alive and able to comment upon it. So in that way, it's stylistically very different. And uh, then we get kind of the big, quote-unquote, big twist that, remember when Wells said the next 60 minutes 
are going to be completely true. Well, the instant that that timer hit 60 minutes was when he started telling the story of, oh yeah, here at the end, and the Picasso tale, and all of that was made up its own fabrication. And that is how he wraps the film, kind of elucidating on that and the fact that he was able to trick us all, all of us viewers. Um, Unless we saw the Netflix play bar say 90 minutes and thought something was up when he was talking about an hour. (laughs) And that is how the movie ends. So I was thinking we've kind of experimented with format a little bit. Um, I think we got in many of our thoughts in the recap and kind of the stuff leading up to it. Um, I did have a few more, I'm calling the section reflections, positive, negative, or general thoughts on the film. And then we can jump straight to the, is it good section. Cool. So I watched this movie twice and I liked it a lot more the second time because all I knew about this movie going in was that it was about fakery and in some ways was a prank upon the viewers. Like there was something artificial about its presentation and that kind of prelude in addition to the way that Wells kind of repeatedly uh, talks about, you know, faking in art. I was kind of primed for significant portions of this to be misleading in significant ways. And so I was kind of always on my toes trying to figure out how I was being duped as the movie was going on. And once I kind of had that picture and was able to go back and revisit it and really just focus on the craft of that, rather than trying to tease out what was true and what wasn't. I admired it a lot more, and I actually even enjoyed it a lot more because I I really kind of got sucked into the different, clever, jarring things that it does and kind of observe how I react to different components of it. So Because there's kind of a twist. Sometimes those movies don't do well in replays because they're so heavily... I don't know, like once you know it, what's the point in going back and watching it? But... I found it rewarding to revisit, so I, I don't know. So I, we're not breaking this episode down into our clear good things, bad things, like we have done in the past, but I have one specific good thing to call out. Go for it. The author, Clifford Irving, has a pet monkey that keeps climbing up on his shoulder during his interviews, and it's a little tiny monkey, like a pygmy marmoset almost. And I loved every time this thing was on screen. (laughs) There's about like a five second shot where it's focused on the monkey, where it goes rapid, rapid pace from grooming itself to what might have been masturbating to immediately grooming the author. (laughs) And it's just its little hands are like running all over the place. It was it was wild. And I wanted the monkey to get its own movie. (laughs) yeah i looked for the monkeys when i watched that second time because i saw how much you you liked him you mentioned that it was a tour day good monkey for you yep it would get if it was just if we're rating just monkeys eight out of eight but we're rating more than that (laughs) one thing that i would definitely put in the not so good things for me is Mostly, like this may not be artistically a not so good thing, but from my enjoyability perspective, was a not so good thing. It's one of these weird kind of disorienting techniques that he uses is to pause the footage on a frame for a few seconds 
and then either continue it or jump to something else. And so when I was, I watched this on HBO Max and the HBO Max player on my computer sometimes hiccups for like a half second or a second at a time when I'm playing a movie. And normally like you don't really think about it because there's kind of continuous motion and your brain is pretty good about ignoring those. But when this movie did it a whole lot, I kept thinking that my web player was messed up. And I was like, why, why does it keep doing this? So I actually downloaded the video file and watched it. So I knew that anytime it stopped, it wasn't my web player. It was in fact an intentional choice by Orson Welles. Unlike when you're watching edge of tomorrow on a bad connection and it slows to a crawl. <laughs> Something we haven't said yet is that a lot of F for fake is hosted by Orson Welles sitting in his editing room surrounded by stacks of film reels. And anytime I see someone editing on film, I wonder how anyone ever had the patience to do that. It just seems so complex. Like actually having to physically cut apart and tape the film physically back together again. He has this cool machine to help him do it with a screen on it that'll play the film. But even so, just going through and finding the frame you want to cut at and splicing the stuff together, just it gives me a headache even imagining it. But with that in mind, thinking about how you would even do a freeze frame, I don't know. It's like make multiple copies of one of the pictures. I, I'm not sure how that works. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, or just roll a camera on the picture. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I, I don't know. I know that, and this is another thing I learned from my film history book, is that in the 60s, so this came out in 73, so this would have been after that, in the 60s, around the time that the new wave was happening in France, that it gradually spread to everywhere movies were being made, because the technology had gotten better and cheaper, it made it a lot easier to do interesting formal things that previously would have been both prohibitive in terms of how difficult it was to do relative to the effect and also just like kind of not in the cinematic grammar of movies like this idea of randomly stopping on a shot of Clifford Irving's face for two seconds and then continuing to pan the room it's not something you would see in like the studio films of Hollywood in the forties or whatever. It's like, I, I think the technology had maybe gotten to the point where I don't know if he would have actually used the, the things that he showed to do the editing for this movie. Although maybe he would, I don't actually know. Gotcha. But just having him there narrating from the editing room raises the possibility that he's messing with you that everything is being manipulated, just like when he's talking from the magician's stage. Yeah. Makes you very aware that what you're watching is constructed. Right. Orson Welles is basically a wizard. <laughs> That's his whole persona. Is he, wa he wants you to think of him as a wizard. He has a fancy hat, and I think he wears like a robe some of the time too. And he's got a big beard. We haven't said that yet. Yeah. So... <laughs> Another thought I had, we mentioned the, the weird intro with, with Oya, but in the anecdote with Picasso that ends up being fake, when they're kind of reenacting that, 
there is quite a bit of footage showing off the the body and the curves of Oya. And I, I just got the sense that Orson Welles was like really proud that he had a really hot mistress and wanted to show her off to the world. And I mean, props for that. <laughs> I totally would do the same thing. But at the same time, I feel like when people do that, when auteurs, you know, they take their starlets and, and do that, it's a little over the top to be acting like they're the hottest woman in the world and not just the one who said yes and is letting you do this. Sure, yeah. It also just feels kind of male gazy and exploitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a beautiful woman, but certainly a little over the top. I agree with you on that. Although I will say I liked how this segment was edited. Uh, the way that Orson Welles told the story was almost like hypnotic. The, the tale that he's telling is how Picasso was gradually captivated by Oya Kodar because she would walk by his house on the beach every day. And so you get like a shot of this still photo of Picasso and then a, a shot of like window blinds and then a shot of Kodar walking along the beach in gradually less clothing. It's like repeated walks by walks by walks by and we keep getting this shot of Picasso through the shutters until gradually he becomes eyes from Picasso paintings. You know, the crazy, twisted Picasso face eyes. And it just really tells the tale of gradual growing obsession and like being twisted by that. That was really cool. I agree with you on that. It's kind of emblematic of the strengths of this film is it has like really interesting ideas for segments at a time. And it's also just a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, you might get a cool thing for two minutes and then it's on to something new. But but yeah, I agree. That part that part was pretty cool. So one thing I read about this film is that it was kind of a pioneer for whatever you want to call the genre of documentary that I've often heard called video essay. So it's basically a combination of documentary footage, but it's very much like someone is kind of writing an essay of their perspective and kind of just giving you glimpses into that component. It, like, it feels like Wells is telling you a story that also happens to be a documentary and kind of weaving his own perspective and how he relates into it as the movie goes. And this honestly reminded me of a lot of YouTube videos that I've seen where you know amateurs do this same thing, like personal documentaries and reflections on something that kind of relate to the creator themselves. In that way, it actually felt kind of modern, although it wasn't exactly kind of the same effect. It, it definitely evoked something that I, I've seen since then. On that note, listeners, keep an eye out for next week's episode. <laughs> to reiterate something that I've already said about this movie, I feel like it is more interested in raising questions that could have interesting answers than attempting to answer those questions. The one thing that I actually did like again was that narration over the shots of the cathedral which I just want to read because I really liked it our works in stone in paint in print are spared some of them for a few decades or millennium or two 
but everything must finally fall in war or wear away into the ultimate and universal ash. The triumphs, the frauds, the treasures, and the fakes. A fact of life, we're going to die. Be of good heart, cry the dead artists of the living past. Our songs will all be silenced, but what of it? Go on singing. Maybe a man's name doesn't matter all that much. And just imagine me with like a much deeper and kind of more delicious voice, honey to the ears, sucking you in. And that's how that segment worked for me. It was interesting, for sure. I like this question of what is the value of art in the face of time's crushing weight? What legacy do we really leave? It reminded me of your talking points during our Rockafire explosion episode of what is the point of art if it is all going to be lost to the dustbin of time? And here we see, you know, if you're thinking of the, the grand masters, there's actually very few works of art that ultimately make it through the filter and become timeless. And even then, you know, they may last a thousand years and, and then be forgotten. Uh, but it, eventually everything ends up dust. Everything ends up uh, an animatronic that no longer plays at birthday parties. <laughs> In a similar vein, there's a quote that Elmir says about how, you know, one of his paintings can start out fake, but then if it gets pushed onward by an art expert and accepted by a curator and hangs in a gallery for a long time, it essentially becomes a valuable work of art. And it reminded me of a quote from Belloc, the villain in Raiders of the Lost Ark, who says, you can take a pocket watch that's worthless, bury it in the sand for 10,000 years, and it becomes priceless. That kind of wraps up most of the specific thoughts I had. Brian, what, what were some of your thoughts on this movie that you haven't had a chance to share yet? Well, I wanted to shout out a few more turns of phrase I really enjoyed from this film. One that wraps up the movie and I think kind of serves as the thesis statement in a way. He says, art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. And... You know, that works with the theme that this movie is fake and, oh, they're tricking you, so we're lying to you. But, I mean, this could apply with any work of fiction or or any painting, you know. The, there's the painting by Rene Magritte, This is Not a Pipe, and it's not a pipe because it's a painting of a pipe. All art is, by its nature, fake in some way. It's a depiction but it can speak to something deeper. It's a lie that helps us realize the truth. That's a good one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was also another line I jotted down that just seemed like something that Maxwell Brock would say in Bucket of Blood. Orson Welles said, Reality is the toothbrush waiting at home for you in the glass. A bus ticket, a paycheck, and the grave. It, it really reminded me of the poem that opens Bucket of Blood when he says, Life is an obscure hobo, bumming a ride on the omnibus of art. Oh yeah, I can definitely, in my head, hear that coming out of his mouth, for sure. You know, now that you bring it up, there's more in common with 
the things that Bucket of Blood is kind of asking about art and what this movie is asking about art, then I realized it's like you couldn't quite get to a violent ends level of parallel, but this whole idea of someone who is in some way a fraud making things that aren't what they seem kind of rising and falling. There, there is some similar similarities there. The narrative of this film is a little too thin to compare with any other story-based movie, I would say. That's true. Yeah, it actually surprised me that we don't really see much happen. It's mostly just like an interview. And then the, I guess the thing that happens happens off screen, which is that we learn that the biographer was involved in his own fraud. But you're right that there's not that much of a story here. Like, I feel like you could edit this down into if you were just taking the documentary parts and just wanted to convey that into like a 15 minute short or something like that. What this whole thing felt like to me was a expose special report, like something that would air late at night on TV or, or, you know, in prime time and that people would be tuned in expecting some big revelation at the end, like Geraldo Rivera exploring the vault of Al Capone. But then in the end, actually they crack it open and there's nothing in there. It's like that you're waiting for some big payoff that never really quite comes. I guess the payoff is that the last 15 minutes of the story were fake, which kind of another observation I, I hinted at. I really never bought for a second that that component was real or that should be taken at face value. So it was less of a rug pull when he was like, oh, but in fact, I made that whole thing up. I got you good. Isn't all art fake? So I did not know that Picasso was alive that late to even be a possibility. But then I looked that up and he pretty much was. And if Oya Kodar was already sleeping with the writer and Orson Welles, why not also Picasso? So I was open to the possibility by the end. That's fair. Another good line or turn of phrase that I made note of is when the forger was described as committing masterpieces. <laughs> Just what a great way to describe making fake art because it's a crime but he is also good at doing what he does i like that committing masterpieces so i'm ready to move to our signature section brian is it good what about you any any other thoughts i can throw out a rating and then i want to just spitball some more wells thoughts after that sure brian is f for fake 1973 a docudrama film co-written, directed by, and starring Orson Welles. Good. I think this episode might be one of the rare cases where the guest rates more highly than the host. But I guess we'll see. Because I thought F for Fake was very good. Six out of eight. I was vibing with this movie. It's definitely weird. Like structurally it seems a little unsound it's presented in an off-kilter way and i don't know that it needed to be edited quite this way i don't know if we needed to see everything that we see here or or hear everything we hear 
because it, it seems like Orson Welles was throwing a lot of things at the wall and, and maybe they didn't all stick. I think Welles as a whole and this film as a microcosm have to be said that they are absolutely entertaining but also super self-important and self-indulgent. I think Orson Welles may have run a little bit into the George Lucas prequel problem where when he was young, he made something that was universally celebrated. And then he kind of... And and you can fact check me on this a little bit if you've done your research, but he wound up in a place where maybe he didn't know what to do next. That's my read on it. It's like you're on the top of the you're on the top of the mountain creatively and then where do you where do you turn? That's an interesting parallel. I would say that's a little bit harsh to Wells because I think part of his problem like Lucas's problem is that he had a vision and the vision was crap and he got a blank check to do it and you know I don't think you know anybody is going to come out here and say that the prequels are masterpieces, despite that they've had a reputation revival, especially online among geeks online and memers online. I think the the prequels have, but I would say, by and large, not too many people I know are going to be calling those kind of masterpieces or or anything really beyond interesting technical achievements. Whereas I feel like Wells was hindered by a combination not of a bad vision, but of a restlessness and also a kind of curse of having to fight so hard for everything he wanted to do, whether it was control of the project or budget for the project, that that kind of diminished some combination of his interest and the actual output. I do think there's something to be said for what you're saying about how the fact that he had complete and total control and no one really to push back on him, that that can be an indulgent outcome. And that might be somewhat true here. Maybe it's that he made Citizen Kane and then everything else after that is like a victory lap. I don't know. He, he doesn't need to be full, full force again. Right. Although by reputation, the Magnificent Ambersons in its pre-butchery form was a peer of Citizen Kane. Some have said perhaps better who who saw it or are kind of extrapolating based on what made it of Wells's original footage in the actual film. But I don't know. I think it's kind of a, a nuanced history. So now I'm curious, what is your rating? So I had a really hard time coming up with how I wanted to rate this. I feel like I say that a lot because it's mixed and sometimes one number in and of itself maybe doesn't represent the complexity of my opinion on something. And I think the number that I will ultimately give it here, that is true, is that I think in some ways this is like an out and out masterpiece. Just the sheer bravura of the editing and the sequencing and the way that it disorients you and jumps around and fiddles with continuity. It's very, if you're someone who likes to think about the nature of film or the creation of film, then I can see this 
being something extremely valuable to you. Like if you're a director and you want to really think about film and really see that the way that things like editing and contrasting the visuals and the sound and jumping from one thing to another can make you think and make you feel and cause some sort of reaction, then as kind of that sort of technical exercise, this is absolutely fascinating and masterful piece. On the other hand, I ultimately found it a, just a hair novelty and found myself distant from it because it was so much about the form of everything. It's a, it's, I admire it a lot more than I actually love it. And if you compare it to other things where it's been kind of off the wall, like I'm thinking of house specifically, it's kind of off the wall and does a little bit of everything and is really out there. That one, at least I really connected with this one. I didn't connect with quite as much. I really, I wasn't vibing with it the same way you were. Although I did like it more the second time through um, when I was kind of, no longer emotionally invested in trying to figure out what the twist ending was going to be, if there was going to be twist ending, etc. Because you're right, in some ways, there's not really a big twist ending. So all of this to say is you could probably take any number from about four up through eight, depending on the context, and throw it on here, and I would co-sign that. For me, I'm kind of ending up right in the middle. I'm actually going to match you. I'm going to say that this is a very good film, and... Although I didn't resonate with it quite as much as it sounds like you did, or I potentially could have, I still found so much to admire and was really thrown for a loop with its kind of off-kilter rhythm. I use the word elliptical, which to me is kind of the perfect encapsulation of how you never quite know exactly what the truth is as you're watching it. So yeah, very good. So I wanted to just kind of throw out some bullet points, just some random thoughts that I have about Orson Welles, if you all indulge me. Absolutely. Go for it. So for those who may be unfamiliar, the prominent voice actor Maurice LaMarche, he's done a lot of cartoon voices and commercials. I think he uh, voices the Mazda commercials recently, but... One of his claims to fame is he does an Orson Welles impersonation. So he did Brain on Pinky and the Brain, a spinoff of Animaniacs. And Brain is just his Orson Welles impersonation. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I'm going to have to go back and watch some clips. Yeah. So if you ever go back and listen to that, that's him supposedly impersonating Orson Welles. Uh, but... If we do a multimedia version of this post, something I'm going to link to is a collection of clips from late in Orson Welles' career when he was maybe not doing feature films anymore. And I got to say, I actually enjoy more the appearances when he gets to just be a personality, an actor or a presenter, what have you, because he's a character. For sure. But in these late career clips, he seems to have tended to hit the bottle. So there are several clips known as the Drunk Orson Welles clips. And it's usually where he is promoting some commercial product. 
So if you look up the Frozen Peas tape, that was one of Maurice LaMarche's favorite to recreate. Where he says, I know a little place. Every July, peas grow there. <laughs> and he just spins out into, like, arguing with whoever is directing the spot. He says, there's too much directing in here. And you really have to experience it. I didn't enjoy that one quite as much as Maurice LaMarche did, but the one that I cannot speak highly enough about is a commercial that he did for Paul Maison Wine. And it's just a delight to watch the many takes unfold of this commercial because it's like this silent actor who just has to sit there and pour Orson Welles a glass of wine. And then Orson Welles just kind of slumps over and after a pause, he goes, mm, The French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. <laughs> there is a California champagne that, like the finest French champagne, is fermented in the bottle and it's vintage dated. And he's just kind of slurring his words and talking about nah, the French champagne. And I cannot speak highly enough about it. I imagine some of this is lost in translation over the radio waves, but you do need to watch this video. I, I'll go give it a look. And also, I will come up with some more things that I want you to read in Orson Welles' voice. And, and you can maybe like have a recurring segment here on, on The Goods where Thank you. you read something as, as Orson Welles, because I, I, I'm vibing with your, your Welles impersonation. Yeah, slap, slap a rating on that. Do I at least get a four out of eight? <laughs> you're you're a high five out of eight you're, you're a good all right good good i i will practice i'll say the best uh use that i've put it to is in an escape room there was a clue where it was like a puzzle like a logic puzzle you know if if x then y and you gotta line things up in a certain order and i read the tape in somewhere between like a churchill and an orson wells <laughs> That's great. So, Brian, what do we have on the docket for next week? You're kind of the orchestrator of what I think will be a special, unique episode. Yes, so this was an idea that I had. It looks like we'll be recording perhaps on the 31st of March, and the episode will hit you a little while after that. But the plan is to continue our theme of trickery and fakery in tribute to April Fool's, which falls on the 1st. Because I wanted us each to select a vaguely feature-length thing that is arguably a film. I t told Dan to pick something that was barely a movie. Something that you can sit down and watch, but is never going to meet the criteria, even in terms structurally, to win any kind of movie award. Uh, so maybe a video essay on YouTube, maybe a VHS board game, <laughs> something that you can pop into a player and consume with your eyes and ears, and that you have things to say about that you might not otherwise have opportunity for. And I have got one picked out that definitely fits that bill. So please check in with us again next week and see what form that takes. It's 
a work that I've picked out that's near and dear to my heart. And even just to say a title now would just sound like gibberish, so I want to leave you in suspense. I too will pass something along to you, Brian, that we can opine over and discuss and uh, surprise the viewers with, so I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully it will be a lie that shows us the truth. (laughs) Is something we can impart value on by determining whether it is good. And I hope that you'll join us in that quest, listeners, yet again, in another exciting installment of The Goods, a film podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.